you pray with me? Heavenly Father, make your word to us seed who sow and bread for those of us who eat. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. I hope Michael's parents won't tell, uh, won't mind if I tell just a little story about Michael. Um, you know, when we come forward for communion, oftentimes we'll cross ourselves if we're not ready to receive communion or, or not in that stage yet. And uh, his brother Silas came forward and Silas crossed himself and I blessed him. And I've learned Michael is a little improvisational. He came forward and covered his eyes. <laughs> it was about the most delightful thing that's happened to me since I've been here. It was hard to not uh, give him a big hug. But I did bless him. The way that we uh, reveal and conceal ourselves to each other is kind of complex. I don't know why he covered his eyes, uh, but we all have those moments where we just don't want to be seen or to see other people. Um, it requires kind of discernment to understand ourselves and to understand each other. It requires an open mind, and especially it requires an open heart. And these are all hard things, really. Uh, we spend a lot of time during the day kind of concealing uh, more than revealing. The heart, it turns out, is quite a battleground for the gospel. Battles are waged for its allegiances and its devotions, its purity, its salvation. And the tools required to conquer the heart are often very tenuous and vulnerable. We have to rely on things like words, persuasion, or actions that are subject to interpretation. That was the challenge that the Apostle Paul faced in our passage this morning from 2 Corinthians, which I encourage you to turn to if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what is in the heart. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, after all this time, I fear that you haven't seen what's in my heart, where the truth lies. Now, as you know, uh, Paul was a very widely traveled missionary and church planter. He was often on the move. He would, he would um, find himself in a new place, and he would begin a congregation there and spend some time, but then he would be moving on. And he relied on other means to remain in relationship with these congregations. Paul loved these congregations passionately and dearly as a parent, as a father, he says. And he had only just a few tools at his disposal to hold them together. He had prayer, he had letters, and he had trusted emissaries. That's it. Imagine having to rely strictly on a written letter and the power of your words when the matter is such of eternal consequence. That's why you get such passion in Paul's letters. It's all he has when so much is at stake. Now, the Corinthian church was a lively and unruly and frankly a problematic church. He'd been with them several times and he'd written several letters. He talks about a difficult visit he talks about a difficult letter. And these new people have joined the congregation. He calls them super apostles, people who think they're super apostles. They've moved in and they're undermining Paul's authority in a congregation that he loves, that he's separated from at a great distance. So vulnerable. 
these super apostles have misrepresented Paul's message. They've disparaged his appearance. They've questioned his vigor and his stamina. They've belittled his credentials. They've challenged his leadership and his authority. Imagine that. Paul, through his words, is trying to pull them back to the center of who they are. Back to the authenticity of their relationship with him in contrast to what he calls peddlers of the gospel. But most importantly, Paul is waging a battle in their hearts over the gospel itself. This is a difficult and passionate letter full of urgency and truth. It's a rescue mission to the Corinthian church. And we're nearing the middle of his appeal in chapter 5 where he's now starting to repeat themes expressed in earlier chapters. He's kind of building momentum. He's moving towards an inflection point. But now he's starting to hone his message and his purpose. And so we'll see in verse 14 of chapter 5 that Paul kind of reestablishes his motive. He says it's the love of Christ that controls him. It's the love of Christ that controls his partners in ministry and not the sort of things that are motivating the posers. It's not just a general type of love that Paul has in mind here. He's not simply saying, I love you more than the others. He has something very specific in mind. He's been describing the qualities of the gospel type of love from the beginning of the letter. And you can read them. They're triumph in Christ. We have freedom in the spirit, he says. We have the light of God in our hearts, in the face of Jesus Christ. He's been sounding these themes, almost as principles, up until now. And now he's starting to bring these principles to the Corinthians in a personal expression. He's going to start driving towards a specific point of application. So now he's going to focus on something specific. And this kind of love that he's talking about is not his love, it's Christ's love. And he describes something that's been called uh, by teachers in the church, the wondrous exchange. Jesus takes all that is ours and he gives us all that is his. Now, Apostle Paul uses a common way of framing his thoughts that's uh, common in the ancient world, which is uh, kind of like an Oreo cookie. In our world, we start with a premise and we kind of go in linear fashion towards a conclusion. What was common then is you start with the general idea and, and then there's this kind of creamy center in the middle and then you drive back towards the, the original point again, but it's a little different, all right? It's kind of home away and home again. So you're gonna, I'm going to munch a little bit on the edges, and then we're going to work towards the middle here, just like Paul does. Okay. So Paul starts out by saying there's this wondrous exchange. Part one, Jesus' incarnation and sacrificial death consumes our sin and our death to the fullest extent. Verses 14 and 15, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You can find the same thing on the other end of the Oreo cookie in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the first part of the exchange. 
Jesus kills our death. He takes our death into himself and consumes it completely. He said, for our sake, it is because of our sin, verse 21, not in spite of it. Do you see that? That Jesus doesn't do an end run around our sin. God doesn't say, I love you in spite of your sin. He goes right for the center of the problem itself, which is your sin. This is why the heart is so important, because we spend so much time psychologically and emotionally moving around the things that are actually the most significant. We create our whole persona dodging the things that are the hardest to face. And Jesus does not do that. Jesus in his wisdom, in his mercy, in his compassion, in his grace, is able to move right into the place that we can hardly face ourselves and solve that problem. That's why Jesus is so amazing. Not in spite of our sin, but because of our sin, Jesus draws very close. The very things that cause us to want to hide are the things that he's most intimately acquainted with, our worst selves. Part two of a great exchange. We not only get the death of Christ in place of our death, but we get his life to give us real life and make it possible. Verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, that it is preoccupied with their own brokenness, but for him who for their sake was died and was raised. Other end of the Oreo cookie, verse 21, in him we might become the righteousness of God. I wish I had time really to preach on that because what does that mean? Just ponder that for a little while on your own. We are the righteousness of God. Now, Paul wants to start moving towards the application. Okay, we're going to go in for the creamy center. Paul isn't like the imposters. And he's challenging the Corinthian Christians to embrace a different perspective. He says in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, Paul's being very polite here when he says we. All right, he's, he's doing something that's very important. He could have said, you are not, he, said, he could have said, you are regarding people according to the flesh, but he doesn't do that first. He doesn't give the bad news first. He's a good counselor in this regard. He creates a connection by using plural pronouns. We regard no one according to the flesh. He's drawing together the bond that they have, and he's He's saying to them, I'm going to appeal to your better selves. We regard no one according to the flesh. He's politely saying, you're blind. You're not seeing things the way they, they truly are. You've closed your eyes at the very moment when they should be the most open. So he's graciously saying, we regard. He gave us this ministry. We are ambassadors. And is reminding them and modeling for them, this is what it's like to be us. This is what our people think and what our people do. He's reminding them of that. 
It's reminding them of who we are together when we're ourselves. Remember, they were confused about who their people are. These imposters came in. And now the Corinthian church is confused about who their people are. And Paul's saying, we, I'm your people. We're the people. And in that, uh, he's reminding them that Jesus sees us differently. That's the source of our saying things differently. Paul's language now becomes very passionate and beautiful and very memorable in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's so beautiful. Paul here slows down the pace. And he reminds us in poetic terms, almost in, in, in capturing almost the whole sweep of Scripture from Genesis 1 of the, new, the old creation to Revelation 22 of the new. And he situates us right in the very center of the work of God. And he says very movingly, you know, the old has passed away, and isn't that a relief? Are we not actually longing to hear that? Because the old is bad in this sense. The old hurts us. The old harms us. The, the old shackles us. The old pins, pinions us, so to speak, to the, to the thing that's dying. And Paul says, yeah, that's, that's past. The new has come. All of this, and I love that word, all. You almost see Paul just expansive here. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself. God is the source of reconciliation. And I want to pause for a moment and just ask ourselves, do we know this about ourselves? I have to ask myself, and I want you to ask yourself, do we really know what's new about us that's new? What is this new thing? What's true about us now that wasn't true before? What is the new creation that you are? What are the attributes about you that are new? What's the old that's passed away? Can you name that? Can you describe it? Can you bear witness to it? Good habit, good practice to identify in prayer and thank God for the old attributes and be specific that have passed away. And try to articulate the things that are new. And if you can't, that's okay. That's probably reasonable to assume. But Jesus can tell you about that. I wonder how often we're even aware of what's old and what's new and what, what God really feels about us. How often are the eyes of our hearts closed to the most basic and fundamental realities of really authentic Christian life, which is the face of God in Jesus holding in his gaze our face. Remember what Paul said in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. It's the minds of the unbelievers that are blind to the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. The minds of believers, conversely, should not be so blind. Now Paul moves in towards his appeal. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to open the eyes of their hearts. And he finally drives home, I think what he's wanted to say all the way along up until now, 
in chapter 5, verse 20. Be reconciled to God. Corinthians, be reconciled to God. In other words, it's possible to be a new creation people and yet have aspects of our lives that are unreconciled to the gospel. That's the crux of the problem here. Now, I want to be very clear that Paul is not teaching here that we can lose our salvation. I, I don't want that. I almost didn't even say that because I don't want that to even enter our minds right now. That's not the theological point. Paul is being very urgent about a very serious matter, which is new creation people are exhibiting unreconciled behavior. It's an indication of something deeply wrong. And Paul, as a good spiritual physician, is not going to skirt around this point. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that they are not aligned with their new natures in Christ. They are unreconciled. And Paul is imploring them. He's urging them. He's appealing to them. Do not remain in this state, but come back to where you belong. He gives a very clear warning in chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is very sobering for Paul. Paul's not worried about his reputation. He actually, he actually can barely put pen to paper to offer his own credentials again later on in the letter. He's embarrassed. He could care less about his reputation. What he cares about is this, that his church might stand before God as new creation people with unreconciled hearts. And that's why Paul's appeal comes again in chapter 6, verse 12. You are restricted in your own affections. Widen your hearts. The Corinthian church was struggling in many areas which made them susceptible to the rhetorical attributes of these false apostles. These false apostles traded in words. They were very good arguers, which at that time was like the best thing that you could be. And they were confusing the Corinthians terribly. And what was happening to the hearts of the Corinthians is that they were shrinking. They were hardening. This is the Bible term for an unreconciled heart is a hard heart. The Corinthian church had been struggling in many areas which made them susceptible to the rhetorical attributes of these false prophets. You can read all about that in other letters. These false apostles took advantage of the Corinthians in their weakened state, and they undermined the integrity of Paul's relationship and through it the integrity of the gospel itself. Scripture describes many, many kinds of threats to a heart. There are things that we do that harden our hearts. We can carry unforgiveness and bear a grudge. We can be stingy in our affection. We can be covetous. We can be just bored, disinterested, distracted. We can be full of anger. And these are 
some of these are overlapping concentric circles, right? They feed on each other. I sometimes feel very stingy in my affection. If I, if I feel wounded or hurt or confused or ashamed, my heart shrinks. And I have a hard time being generous and merciful to the people that, that I feel have been the source of my discomfort. There are things that we do that harden our hearts. And there's also things that have been done to us that wound our hearts. We may have unhealed memories or traumatic experiences or abuse. We may have just suffered significant disappointment. We may be suffering with an illness. We may have family circumstances that are out of control and are hurting us because they don't seem to align with our expectations. These are heart issues. And they aren't things that can be simply worked out by effort. That's why Paul's word to the Corinthians isn't, hey, let's try harder. Before they can be dealt with, though, they have to be recognized. That's why we need help. Because you can't just have somebody wade into your heart and start blowing it up unwisely. We need others to help us who have maturity. This is the ministry of reconciliation that's at the very heart of the Oreo cookie here. Paul says that the reconciled life is premised on the ministry of reconciliation. We don't reconcile our own hearts. It takes someone from outside to help us to become reconciled on the inside. That's why Paul says God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. That's the epicenter. That's where it all begins and where it all keeps beginning again and again. We can't reconcile the unruly places in our hearts by effort because that's not how it works. No more than a child who hurts herself can comfort herself. When my daughter skinned her knee, I don't, when she'd come running to me, I wouldn't tell her, hey, take care of it yourself. Every parent knows that. You join with her, and we kiss her knee, and I comfort her, and I do something about it that shows that I care, that solves the problem. I put a Band-Aid on it, even though it doesn't need a Band-Aid. That's a simple expression of what has to happen. When my daughter skins her knee like that, she can't help herself out of the distress. That's the problem. It's not just the blood. It's the heart issue. And she comes to me as her parent or to mom because she wants somebody with her in the distress. Hard and broken hearts require the presence of someone who's glad to be with them in their sin or their woundedness and can also help them return to joy. And that's why Paul goes back to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit because there just simply isn't any memory, any experience, any sin, any desire or need that overwhelms Jesus. He is not capable of being overwhelmed. He wasn't overwhelmed by the storm. He wasn't overwhelmed by the cross. He became sin for us. He didn't just point at it from a distance. 
And in that great exchange, he takes that sin and he replaces it with himself right in that very spot. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall reach in and lead me. Your right hand shall lay hold of me. Jesus is the greatest ambassador, isn't he? But he's so much more. He's the king himself, the forgiver, the healer, the restorer, the savior, the friend. Paul's just doing what God has done to him. God does send ambassadors like Paul, other people. Paul was God's ambassador to the Corinthians. And like Jesus, Paul isn't always so easy to metabolize, to be honest. Paul didn't avoid the issue. He spoke strong and difficult words to the Corinthians, and that's what he's trying to say. I do that because I love you. But neither did Paul condemn them. What Paul offered is what Jesus offered, which is himself. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 3, I don't say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's an ambassador. I guarantee you that whatever the imposters were saying, they weren't saying that. That's deep love. That's the sort of love that's able to be truthful even in hard things because they won't deliver the message and then leave you alone to suffer. I encourage all of us to be people with soft hearts this morning. Let's listen carefully to the prompting of the Holy Spirit when he sheds a little bit of light on areas in our life that need the ministry of reconciliation. Let's let our ears be open. Let's not sit lightly or comfortably with unreconciliation. This is hard. Let's not be slow to act when we discern something that threatens our faith or tempts us away from our trust in Jesus. We may not know what to do. In fact, usually we don't. But acknowledging it is a good place to start. Let's learn to welcome ambassadors. Let's learn to welcome those who are sent by God to bring the ministry of reconciliation to us and reminded, remind us what it's like to be God's people. Also not very easy to do. Finding a trustworthy ambassador requires also discernment. All of us need the ministry of reconciliation, and all of us are called to provide it. If you don't know where to start, start where the disciples did, including the Apostle Paul. Be amazed by Jesus. Tell him that you welcome him into your heart, especially the hard parts. Listen to what he says. Learn to receive his ministry and be quick to respond. The disciples saw just a glimpse of the veil torn away when Jesus rose in the boat and commanded the storm to be calmed. 
It was easier for Jesus to calm the storm than to calm his disciples' hearts. But he prevailed in that, and he'll prevail in our hearts as well. Amen.